one of the big themes of the book is he's a very poor military strategist. I mean, on 9-11, he won a big tactical victory, but it was not a strategic victory. And of course, you know, flash forward to today, he'd be delighted about our drawdown from Afghanistan, but he, you know, he didn't plan for any of that. He, he put a post facto gloss on his own failures saying he wanted to draw us into endless wars in the Middle East, but he, that was not his goal. His goal was to get us out of the Middle East. That was Peter Bergen, journalist, documentary producer, and author of numerous books, most recently, The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden. He is the Vice President for Global Studies and Fellows at New America, a CNN analyst, a professor of practice at Arizona State University, and last but not least, a fellow here at the Center on National Security at Fordham Law. Welcome to Vital Interest Podcast, Season 3. 9-11, 20 years later. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I'm the founding director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. 20 years ago, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four planes in a suicide attack against the United States, killing nearly 3,000 people. Events since then have shaped American life, its laws, its policies, its norms, and even its culture. Over the next two weeks, we'll be releasing five episodes that provide an unflinching look at what happened on 9-11 and the consequences for us as a nation. Our guests will help us understand the legacy of those attacks and more directly, the legacy of America's response to those attacks. Welcome, Peter. Karen, thank you. I wanted to start by talking a little bit about you. By my count, you've written at least five books on al-Qaeda and bin Laden, and two others that are directly related, one on Afghanistan and the Taliban and one on jihad in the United States. And I remember that when I met you shortly after 9-11, bin Laden wasn't new to you. Al-Qaeda wasn't new to you. This is something you'd been working on. I don't want to give away our ages, but um, (laughs) in the decade before uh, 9-11, you had interviewed bin Laden in 1997. And so my question to you is, do you remember what made you so interested in Al-Qaeda and bin Laden at that point in your career? Well, initially, it was the first Trade Center attack, you know, where they killed six people. It was a group of people that had trained in Afghanistan in some shape or form. And I went to my bosses at CNN, Pam Hill, and the late John Lane. And I'd met this guy, Richard McKenzie, who was a real expert on Afghanistan. And uh, he said, there's this guy, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who may be involved, who's still an, an important player in Afghanistan today, um, sort of Taliban-like, but not part of the Taliban. And so we went to our, my bosses at CNN and said, hey, let's try and do something about this phenomenon. And, you know, they didn't, to their immense credit, they said, you know, I took $60,000 in cash on the trip but in 1993, because wow. I was paying for everything. And it was, we had no idea. There's no phone service. We didn't know how long we'd be going. I kept it all like in my- I was just going to say, how do you carry- I mean, I kept it very carefully in parts of my body that were unlikely to be searched. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I mean, sort of like, you know, in a, in a money pouch. So, but they let us go and do it. We did an hour. Peter Arnett was the correspondent. And mm-hmm. so that team then went, when Bin Laden's name came out in 96, for the first time because of the State Department released a, a white paper about him. That's when we went and I went back to my bosses and said, this guy Bin Laden, we think he's responsible for the trade center attack, which wasn't quite right, but it turned out to be broadly speaking that he was in charge of this movement. And they said, fine, go ahead. And, you know, again, Peter Arnett and like the cameraman, Peter Juvenal spent, he'd gone into Afghanistan 75 times during the anti-Soviet jihad. Um, and I went and that's where we interviewed Bin Laden. So my interest has been, you know, really longstanding. And, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't think like this at the time because I was not smart enough to think like this, but 
Cold War ended. And then what's the, what's the next story? It's a pretty simple question. And I didn't know that this was the next story, but it seemed interesting to me. And then it did turn out to be the next story. And, and when you met Bin Laden, just to talk about that interview for, for, one, for one minute, did you pick up something that you hadn't expected? Yeah, I mean, his vibe was very kind of low-key. His vibe was like a cleric. He, his vibe was not kind of a table-thumping revolutionary. He was really, really low-key. I mean, he did not raise his voice. The people around him hung on his every word. They called him Sheikh, you know, kind of an honorific yeah, yeah. title. I didn't know what to expect, to be honest, because we barely knew what he was going to look like. Forget about, I mean, anybody listening to this, like, knows, you know, a library full of information about bin Laden that we didn't know at the time. And um, all we knew is that he was this guy with money and he was assembling people in Afghanistan. State Department thought he was a significant financier of Islamic extremism. And, uh, you know, one of the key figures in the book, which is, is Gina Bennett, who was the first mm-hmm. person to really kind of... In the new book, yeah. New book, yeah, to raise the alarm about bin Laden. And she wrote, I mean, I think, you know, it's public, publicly available document now called The Wandering Mujahideen. She wrote it in 93 for State Department, INR, the intelligence shop there. And she called, she called it really very clearly very early on. It was a handful of people in the government who shared these views because it just wasn't really a topic of interest. But then they attacked the World Trade Center, this group of Afghan Arabs. And then that's what turned a number of people in the United States government. Again, very small. You mentioned when Dick Clark is going to be part of the 9-11 series that you're doing um you know he was one of them but we can name by name the people you know all of them who are really concerned with this in the pre-1998 before the embassies in, in africa were blown up it was you know a few dozen people at best across the u.s government who were remotely interested in this topic so then 9-11 does happen and it's bin laden and his al-qaeda where were you I was going into CNN uh, to report on the death of the assassination of Ahmed Shah Massoud. You know, his death was going to was the end of the anti-Taliban alliance because you know he was an amazing guy. I met him in '93. So, like I've met a number of different people. I've never met anybody more impressive personally. And he emanated kind of a a kind of gentleness and strength and mm. kind of a light. And you know, I mean, it's, he was a very unusual human being. Um, and, you know, they killed Massoud, and that was the end of the anti-Taliban alliance. Now, the Northern Alliance, which Massoud was running, kept this quiet. They, they lied about the status. And I was going into CNN. I knew from people close to Massoud that he was dead. And then, you know, my dad was living with me at the time, and he, so he was a former pilot, and he saw a plane fly into the Trade Center, and he thought that was kind of odd, given the fact that you know, he was a former pilot. And then, you know, the second plane went in and I went into CNN. Obviously, it was a very different story. And I went back many years later and I reviewed the transcript of at what point could I get on CNN to say I thought it was Osama bin Laden. It was around 1.10 p.m. on 9-11. Because obviously, there's a ton of news and there's a lot of other people who are on reporting on the news. But they gave me uh, some time to explain kind of all stuff that would seem very obvious now. But Capability and intent were really the two questions. Uh, who had the intent? Maybe quite a few people might have the intent. Uh, who has the capability? You know, the, the Venn diagram of int- intent and capability was not big because Mike Morrell, who was, you know, the, then became the acting director of the CIA later in life, was 
President Bush's briefer and Bush asking the question at 10.30 a.m. on 9-11, who did this? And, uh, you know, Morrell says it could have been Iraq or, or Iran. They have the capability, but they have no interest in doing this kind of thing. And I, I, I personally think it's been a lot. And in fact, Mike Morrell had been the briefer on August the 6th, 2001, that read the famous presidential daily brief determined to have striking the U.S. So, so it's hard to get uh, everybody's mind around the fact that a non-state actor would have the capability. The intent was sort of known from, you know, a series of fatwas and, you know, statements. But did the capability surprise you? I was surprised, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody was surprised because, I mean, this was, we, we I mean, it was hard to absorb uh, such a catastrophic day. And, you know, because the other attacks had happened over there in Africa or in Yemen, it was harder to kind of absorb that. And which is strange because not only had there been the Trade Center attack in 93, there'd also been the arrest of Ahmed, Ahmed Rassam in December of 1999. Now, he was trained by Al-Qaeda. He had a whole trunk full of RDX explosives that he was planning to drive to LAX airport and blow up in the middle of the Christmas holiday travel season. He would have killed hundreds of people at LAX, LAX airport. So it should have been more clear. And, and in fact, Barbara Sood, who's public knowledge, wrote that PDB for President Bush. Yeah, she was very influenced by the fact that Ahmed Rassam had just pled guilty to a plan to blow up LAX airport when she prepared that brief. So it's an interesting philosophical question. I'm not smart enough to answer, but you can, Karen, which is <laughs> given a ton of evidence that you should sort of kind of come to a conclusion. Why is it that you're kind of blinded from what actually the conclusion should be? And I don't know. It's just, I, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but there was, there was plenty of evidence in the system. And certainly, and, you know, I wrote a letter to John Burns, the main foreign correspondent at the Times. He won, I think, two or three Pulitzer Prizes at the time. I knew him from Yemen after the coal attack. And I wrote him a letter on August 14th, 2001. It was a four-page letter laying out why I thought something was coming down the pike that really required... You know, I, on I, what I, day? August the 14th, 2001. Wow. And I laid out a four-page letter, in this four-page letter, why I thought... You know, Bin Laden's recent threats really amounted to something that needed to be paid attention to. There was going to be an attack on American interests. And he actually wrote a piece, which the Times forgot. You know, there was an editing dispute. And they put it on the website on Saturday, September 9th. They didn't put it in the newspaper on Sunday because it was an editing dispute. They, in a very kind of slightly Orwellian thing, took it off the website after September 11th, which they conceded later was a big screw up. Uh, and it only got in the newspaper on page 26 on September 12th after the event. And so the headline of that New York Times piece was Bin Laden charts a violent future on videotape. It's the first time that Bin Laden had released a two-hour videotape. Mm -hmm. you know, his duty to warn view, the victory of the coal in Yemen will continue. It was part of a pattern of him warning us. And you didn't need access to classified information to sort of have a view that things were looking pretty bad in the summer of 2001. It's interesting. One of the points you make is how much bin Laden documented himself. So it wasn't just, you know, making videotapes about announcements, but right, his just intense desire to, to document himself, video and otherwise. Yeah. I mean, what are the document, the key document for the book that came out relatively recently, you know, that it was only in the Trump administration that all the documents from Abad Abad were finally released. And the most interesting document was what the CIA described as a bin Laden, a bin Laden journal. Actually, it was something else. It was a Bin Laden family journal, yeah. 208, 28 pages in Arabic handwritten, and it hasn't got the attention it deserved. I 
Nadia Wadat, who's a, a leading scholar of Islamist thought and a fellow in America like you are, Karen, she um, helped me interpret it because, you know, it's handwritten. Yeah. It's written for their consumption. So it's full of sort of allusions that are not easy to unpack. And it's in Arabic, obviously. But the, the journal is about a dilemma that the Bin Laden family faced, which is here is they saw Bin Laden as a world historical figure, yet the Arab Spring had nothing to do with him or his ideas. And so on February the 15th, 2011, Bin Laden's oldest wife, Um Hamza, who had a PhD in child psychology, she was a claimed direct descent from the Prophet Muhammad. She had a she had a previous job, unusually in you know, in Saudi Arabia as a woman in her mid-30s teaching deaf mute children. Mm-hmm. She had an independent career. Well, Bin Laden really looked up to her as a sort of, basically saw her as an intellectual peer, maybe something more. Certainly, she was much more educated than him. And so he was thrilled to have her back because she could help him sort out, he thought, this dilemma, which is how does he, how can I intervene, give a big speech, reclaim the spotlight, help direct the Arab Spring in a direction I think is important. And he also had his other oldest wife, uh, Siham, who had a doctorate in um, Quranic grammar. So they were having nightly meetings with Bin Laden and his two adult daughters who were taking notes, this diary, and also his adult son. And they were puzzling about what Bin Laden should say. And, you know, they were kind of interviewing Bin Laden about the events of the day. He would be watching a lot of Al Jazeera. Then they would talk about it that night, about events in Tunisia and Libya, in Egypt, um, in Yemen. They would get his thoughts and... um, all and yet the Arab Spring wasn't aimed at going the way bin Laden would have wanted or wanted to Yeah, plan. no, in the early days, it was liberals and Muslim Brotherhood folks. And it was uh, so th- this was the, this was the dilemma he faced. And he also was conscious of the fact that the 10th anniversary of 9-11 was hoving into view. And he wanted to say something big about that. He was thinking about issuing a public apology to Muslims, interestingly, about on the issue of Muslim civilian casualties, the Abbottabad documents are full of bin Laden's admonitions to Al-Qaeda in Yemen, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, other groups, you know, stop killing Muslim civilians, which makes sense, uh, you know, certainly for a group that positioned itself as the defender of Muslims, the fact that it was killing literally tens of thousands of Muslim civilians in countries like Somalia, Iraq, Yemen, etc. This was damaging the brand. Well, as you point out and have pointed out several times, you know, when you look at what happened to the region after 9-11, it was, in your words, exactly the opposite of bin Laden's aims with the 9-11 attacks. 100%. So he was a, one of the big themes of the book is he's a very poor military strategist. I mean, on 9-11, he won a big tactical victory, but it was not a strategic victory. And of course, you know, fast forward to today, he'd be delighted about our drawdown from Afghanistan. But he, you know, he didn't plan for any of that. He he put a post facto gloss on his own failures, saying he wanted to draw us into endless wars in the Middle East. But he, that was not his goal. His goal was to get us out of the Middle East. And as you say, Karen, he yeah, we had a lot of bases in the Middle East before 9-11. We have a lot more after, <laughs> yeah, including in countries like Qatar and United Arab Emirates and Kuwait. And, and other places where Islamist jihad threat is, is you know, requiring U.S. presence, right? Or which U.S. sees it as requiring its presence. So you find this trove of, or they find a trove of documents in Abbottabad, right? And they're like almost 500,000 files. 470,000 files. Now, luckily, most of those are are not useful in the sense that they are newspaper articles that he was reading. So he was, everything was coming via thumb drives and PDFs of stuff, books that he was interested in, newspaper articles he was interested in. He would do 50 drafts of a document. Of the 470,000 files, there are, 
6,000 pages of documents, letters, memos that he was writing or people were writing to him or that he had copies of maybe internal correspondence within Al-Qaeda. And so, you know, the universe of material is 6,000 pages, which is still substantial. That is, that is really useful. This has really been loud and unplugged. It's his real thought. So it's a very, it's a very useful resource. In, in reading through these papers, I'm just wondering, and I, and I know it's there in talking about his wives and talking about his family and talking about that, that sort of more domestic slash thoughtful life. Did you learn anything new? Well, the extent to which he relied on his two highly educated wives. Yeah, I kind of vaguely knew that they were highly educated, which is interesting of itself. But I mean, the extent to which he was relying on them to kind of do his thinking for him. You know, he wrote this letter to Um Hamza, his oldest wife. And one of the letters is almost like the lovelorn swaying because he's so happy to be reunited with her after a decade. She'd been living under house arrest in Iran. You know, his two bodyguards were not threatening to leave. They were leaving him. Um, and he faced a really existential crisis because they were his two links to the outside world and they did everything for him from the most mundane, you know, buying groceries to the most important, sending messages to other members, leaders of Al-Qaeda. And so the bodyguards were refusing. They were very concerned. They were, A, they were being paid a hundred bucks a month and B, they were, you know, they were fed up with all the risks attending being looking after the world's most wanted man. And of course, they were right to be concerned because both of them were killed and, and one of their wives were killed the night Bin Laden was killed. So, but they were planning to leave him and Bin Laden wrote a letter to them on January 15th, 2011, saying, hey, I know our relations have got pretty bad and I want to, even though we live together on the same compound, I'm writing you an official letter saying, we're going to stay together till July, 2011. But the bodyguard said, you can't, we can't let anybody else new onto the compound. And, if, and we're not going to go and pick up your wife 300 miles away in Waziristan and bring her back. And Bin Laden was even volunteering to go himself to pick her up, which would have been a huge risk for somebody as recognizable as him. Amazing. But he didn't do that. And, and she eventually made her way to the compound and shows up on February 15th, 2011 and joins him. So I think one of the surprises was the way that he relied on his older, older wives for his thinking. And then three months later, um, Bin Laden's dead. Um, You know, the U.S. sent in a a team of Navy SEALs and they killed bin Laden. You wrote at the time that given the death of bin Laden and the Arab Spring, both signs that maybe, you know, we could move on from this period that had been defined as the war on terror. And you were you were actually very hopeful about it. Do you remember that? I do. And I mean, unfortunately, I was wrong um, about it. And I, you know, engaged in wishful thinking and Maybe the events just took the wrong course. Maybe you. Well, exactly. I mean, history. I mean, history doesn't cooperate sometimes. Exactly. (laughs) So, but let's talk a little bit about why it took so long, even to get to this point. You know, one of the things that you talk about in in all of your body of work is Tora Bora, right? But the mischance of Tora Bora, which was in December of two thousand and one. Yeah. Do you still see it after all of this? And I know you've written about it in this book, but does anything ever nag at you? Like maybe it wasn't the turning point because it's such a a dire consequence. One of the great things about following story for a long time is is kind of what you do actually learn that is new. And I have done a lot of work on Tora Bora and I visited Tora Bora twice, uh, you know, fairly extensively. Isn't that near where you interviewed him? Near Tora Bora? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I'm thinking of a summer vacation home for my family there too. So that's um, not real. 
No? <laughs> okay, good. Okay, thank you. <laughs> You're a little hard to get to. <laughs> I would think. Oh my God, get out of. All right. Uh, but no, but so Torabara, so one, I'll give you an example of sort of a new document that came out. And so Eamon Alzvari wrote his own account of what happened at the Battle of Torabara that was published in 2015. And it's a, you know, somewhat uh, thorough account of kind of what happened. And he now said. the leader of, of uh, Al Qaeda. Yeah. Zawahiri. Yeah. So he says that bin Laden left the Torah Battle of Torah Bara on December 12th at 11 p.m., which I, I always knew was somewhere kind of in this mm-hmm. time frame. But here was a, this, Ayman Azwari was with bin Laden as they mm-hmm. led the, the battlefield. So it is incredibly precise time. Now, Afghanistan's eight and a half hours ahead of the East Coast. So it's uh, 2.30 in the afternoon. And that's pretty much exactly the time that Secretary Rumsfeld is being briefed by General Tommy Franks about the Iraq war plan. We know that from multiple people who were involved in the briefing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Iraq war plan is 800 pages long. And Tommy Franks, a week earlier, had been told to rewrite it by Rumsfeld. So you can, you can see where their heads were at and missed opportunities and bin Laden. The historical evidence for bin Laden being at Tara Bara and in this precise moment is now overwhelming. So... Yeah, I mean, it was a missed opportunity, and I don't engage, engage a lot in a lot of what if history, but I do. I do in the, in the book take a pause for the what if we had killed or captured Bin Laden at, at Tora Bar. I think things might have been a bit different. One, it might have been easier to do a deal with the Taliban, who were really defeated and were willing to take a deal if Al Qaeda was sort of taken off the battlefield. Uh-huh. Two. Uh, I think it would be harder to make the case for the Iraq War if Al Qaeda was sort of like mostly gone because it wasn't just WMD, it was their supposed links to Al-Qaeda that made the case for the war. You know, and it might have been sort of closure because the whole war was about the Taliban not handing over bin Laden. So I think it, it could have had an effect, a, a, a not insignificant effect. Are there other missed moments, like maybe not at that level, but other missed moments over the 20 years that you say there was another time, there was another decision? Well, I mean, there were certainly mistakes. So, I mean, the Iraq War being the kind of things written sensibly about this. <laughs> you know, after 9-11, bin Laden just disappears. Before 9-11, there's a whole well-known history of places where bin Laden may well have been um, and shots that were not taken uh, because of lack of intelligence, concerns about collateral damage, you know, kind of uh, also an underestimation of what bin Laden could do in the pre-9-11 era. But after, after Tora Bora, he just disappears. I mean, he... And now, you know, one of the great documents that I rely on is the Pakistani Commission into the Abbottabad uh, Raid, which is a more than 200-page document um, and is pretty quite a thorough piece of work. It takes the Pakistani government to task on two levels. One, its immediate response to the U.S. raid into Pakistan. And two, basically, its effectlessness in, in terms of ever locating bin Laden in Pakistan. And it, it was leaked to Al Jazeera in 2014, and it it has a very detailed account of kind of where bin Laden was. Was He went into Kunar in eastern Afghanistan as opposed to into Pakistan, which was very clever for about a year because everybody was thinking he would go straight over the border into Pakistan. Kunar is heavily mountainous, very heavily wooded, a great place to disappear. Then he went to Peshawar, big city, for a little bit. Then he went to Swat, which is sort of the Switzerland of Pakistan, where he had a, a kid with his youngest wife. Then he went to Haripur, which is a really obscure city in uh, Pakistan. He had another couple of kids, uh, another kid there, and then he went to eventually went to Abbottabad, where he had he also had another couple of kids. 
So, you know, how many fugitives have four kids when they're on the run? How many, how many fugitives take three wives uh, for, my, for chunks of, of that run? And so the implication here is that how did they not notice? How did they not see? I, no, did... Actually, you know, Pakistan is a big country. And, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, an answer to that is um, Whitey Bulger. You know, Whitey Bulger killed 20 people or so in, in, in Boston and was on the FBI's most wanted list for a very long time. And, you know, was only arrested many, many years later living in San Francisco. And he was or it's in California somewhere. And he was, you know, he, he's living in the United States and so he disappeared. So, you know, if you really want to disappear, and Bin Laden did a pretty good job of disappearing. He was, he, despite the fact that he had this large entourage, he also was going to considerable lengths to make sure that he wouldn't be found. So I, I don't, there was no evidence in the in the documents in Abbottabad that he had sort of Pakistani official help or anything like that. Right. The whole Sai Hirsch kind of conspiracy theory is you know, not supported by Is him. it more a sense of just incompetence? Well, isn't incompetence a better explanation of all human activity than almost any other? I mean, yes. Well, yes. <laughs> um, you know, it's been a long time since bin Laden was killed. Yeah. Right. And here we are. We're still in, or so we would say, the war on terror. Yeah. On the other hand, you do see the Biden administration taking steps to move out of it, repealing the 2002 AUMF talking about repealing or replacing the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, other things that are related like the closing of Guantanamo. And then of course, the withdrawal of troops from um, Afghanistan and the withdrawal of forced troops in uh, Iraq. So, or changing of the mission in Iraq, basically. So, you know, you've been very outspoken about what you think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Just how do we think about this war that was, as you've said many times, a forever war, right? And also a forever expanding war. (laughs) Um, And now we have a situation where it seems like there's no good options. Isn't that history in general where, I mean, it's just sort of, you're always choosing least bad options. I mean, it's not like choosing from a menu of great options. I think we confuse the absence of American troops as the beginning of peace, and that is you know, that could be true, but it often isn't true. And um, you know, the headlines in December of 2011 on Reuters, Iraq. You know, when we pulled out of Iraq, was you know, U.S. troops pull out, Iraq war ends. Well, that was a what H.R. McMaster would correctly call strategic narcissism, which is always about us. And uh, you know the. Same in Afghanistan. I mean, I, the Times, I think, may have corrected a headline it had relatively recently where it said, you know, U.S. troops pull out, Afghan war ends. <laughs> no, I know. War is barely beginning. You know, what we've seen before is a croquet match prepared to what is about to unfold, which is something like the 1990s civil war, which was you know, hundreds of thousands of people dead. And uh, that, that is unfortunately kind of the future, I think. The Afghans have been preparing for this for a long time because the United States started saying it's going to withdraw uh, back in December 1st, 2009. When the, the dire predictions are coming true. But what about the war on terror as we understood it from, our, you know, from 9-11 and the attacks of 9-11 and understanding bin Laden al-Qaeda? Would you, could you uh, make the argument that the war on terror, as we originally defined it, is coming to an end now, if not with bin Laden's death and the Arab Spring? Yeah, I mean, the war on terror, capital W, capital T, what used to be called the GWAT, the global war on terror. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, it probably there's a 
imprecision in like how people see that term. I mean, there's a linguistic problem we're very familiar with about how we describe this, but uh, and part of the problem after 9-11 was not having the, I think, the language to kind of explain this. What do you mean by yeah. that? Can we talk about that a little well, bit? Well, I mean, it's it's sort of, it, you know, the, the, the nearest analogue in American history to Al-Qaeda were the Barbary Pirates, which were a criminal organisation that was using violence and, you know, we conducted a, some kind of war against. And I mean, and so the, the categories got all mixed up and you've written extensively about this <laughs> issue. It's like our usual categories didn't completely apply. So, you know, you know, I think ending the AUAMF uh, might well be a good thing, but the enemy has a vote and yeah, they better, you know, they're not going to pay any attention to that. And, and unfortunately, the Taliban are going to you know, do very well in the coming weeks. Uh, and on the 9-11 anniversary, they're going to be rolling American Humvees into major Afghan cities. And, yeah, that's going to be the split screen. So for them, that's going to be a tremendous victory. And it's like ISIS in 2014. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a tremendous morale booster for anybody with these ideas anywhere around the world. Um, so the, you know, this thing will continue. And let, let's talk a little bit about the United States. You know, after 9-11, we built up a tremendous military intelligence response to understanding things we hadn't been paying enough attention to in the past, to expanding um, intelligence forces in a, in a lot of ways. And we had successive presidents who said, we're going to take the war over there and we're going to keep the war over there. Did the United States succeed in building up a robust defense against any future attack? I think so. I mean, the fact that we can only point to one foreign terrorist organization successfully carrying out any kind of lethal terrorist attack on the United States since 9-11 speaks for itself. Which was? That was an attack in Pensacola right. in 2019, which killed three American soldiers, which Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula were certainly aware of. Now, did they direct it? When did that's not even clear? Mm-hmm. So that's the only, you know, that's the exception that proves the rule. And that so we, we've managed to contain this, but that it's management and containment. It's not, you know, defeat and uh, declaration of victory. And uh, the kind of toolkit that you described uh, and special operations, special forces, drones, cyber warfare, presidents is different as, you know, President Obama and President Trump kind of followed that playbook in different ways. It kind of worked. It will continue to work. It will likely be the de- default position of the Biden administration a few months from now if things really go south in Afghanistan. They, you know, they can change their mind about this, this plan. What prompted Obama to change his mind on, on Iraq was the ethnic cleansings of the of the Yazidis and the murder of Jim Foley. Mm-hmm. And so if there is ethnic cleansing, there's a you know duty to protect kind of response that the United States might take upon itself. Final thoughts on what the war on terror did to the country, our country. Well, I, I make the argument and, and you're making the argument in your book, <laughs> your forthcoming book. And Spencer Ackerman makes it in his, and we've all arrived at this somewhat independently. I, I think it's hard to explain Trump without the war on terror. And I don't say that in a negative sense. I mean, I just say the war on terror was kind of very helpful to, to Trump. Um, because if you go back to 2015, 2016, um, ISIS was at its height. You know, ISIS-inspired terrorists killed 49 people in Orlando at a nightclub um, and, and 14 people at an office party and in San Bernardino, California, and 130 people in, in Paris, etc. And Americans were really concerned about terrorism. And Trump seemed to have a simple answer to that, which is the travel ban. 
and half of Americans thought that was a good idea. That includes Democrats and independents. So I do think it affected the politics. And for, for people who cared about terrorism, and that was after 9-11, more, in 2016, more Americans were concerned about terrorism than they'd been any time since uh, just after 9-11, according to polling data. And Trump had a slight advantage over Hillary Clinton on this issue. And he won the campaign very narrowly. And I'm, so I'm not drawing a straight line between 9-11 and Trump's camp election victory, but I think there is something about that helped him. You, you've written a, a much more uh, thoughtful and, and comprehensive account of, of that question. And that wasn't the question I was trying to answer in my book. It was really a biography of bin Laden. But I do say that bin Laden is one of the few people that changed history. And there's very few people who can really say that. And if he hadn't masterminded the 9-11 attacks, there were a lot of things that would have been different. But he did. Right. Peter, thank you so much. People should buy and read your book, The Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. But not only that, I think it's really interesting to, to, to look at your career over time and how in this last one, as you say, you sort of encounter not just the leader of Al-Qaeda, but also the man who was thinking about his legacy and other people who were thinking about his legacy. It's fantastic that you've been doing this for so long because it's where else can we get all of the, the, the biggest picture of, of bin Laden. Um, so thank you for joining me in this 20 year anniversary of 9-11 conversation. Thank you, Dr. Greenberg. Thank you for listening to today's conversation, a part of our special series on 9-11, 20 years later. Our thanks to Ed Strauss and Sally Spooner for their generous support of the series. Special thanks as well to Kasia Brisalian for editing content production to Julia Tedesco for management, and to Tom Lavashekia and his team at X Factor Media for the production. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Send us your feedback at vitalinterestpodcast.org and follow us on Twitter at VIP underscore CNS. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Vital Interest on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Karen Greenberg.